why don't we start in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So um, we're still covering the symbols of the Mass, and I'm going to cover it for several weeks. Um, and so once again, please feel free to raise your hand and say, well, why do we do that? But I'm just going to go through the Mass, and I still just, I'm on the entrance right, so I didn't get very far into it. But today I just want to uh, cover the first of the four parts of Mass. Remember the Kahal Yahweh is the gathering, the word, the meal, and the dismissal. So I'm just doing the gathering right, but just on the gathering right, just to, I know I'm going to overuse this, but shouldn't we worship the way God has asked us to worship? So if somebody says, well, why do you Catholics make this big deal about the procession? And I've heard the argument that, oh, you're making this big deal that the priest is here. Well, A, you should, but B, jokingly, it's not about the priest, it's about the community. Um, and you used to say, but in the Bible, God asks us to make a procession. Remember, the whole Bible is one big procession. It's Adam and Eve making a journey back to the promised land. It's Abraham making a journey, sorry, paradise. Abraham making a journey to the promised land. Uh, Moses making a journey to the promised land. Exile, making the people are making a return back to the promised land. Jesus starts at the north and processes down uh, to Jerusalem to uh, die in resurrection. All scripture is this pr procession. But also, and I do love this in Judaism, if you read the book of Leviticus, which is strangely enough, I do really love, do you know the Bible commands that three times a year, the people of Israel are ordered to make a procession to Jerusalem to uh, appear before the face of God. So there's three pilgrimages that you have to take every year if you're Jewish. So three times a year, you appear before the face of God, quote unquote. Uh, later in the class, I'll tell you, well, what does the face of God look like? In the Bible, what does the face of God look like? And I'll just give you the answer ahead of time then explain it later. Uh, it looks like bread and wine. Um, so let me repeat. If you say that you worship according to the Bible, shouldn't your worship involve some walking? And the pilgrimage feasts in Hebrew, they come from the word that means leg because on a pilgrimage, you walk. And since in ancient times there weren't public um, uh, transportation, the idea of the pilgrimage festival, of course, is that everybody goes to Jerusalem together. There, three times a year, you offer a sacrifice and appear before the face of God. So it's not just you walking alone. You walk with others. And the idea is that well, all of us are walking with others to get to the promised land. So... All the ancient feasts, whether it's Passover, Passover commemorates leaving Egypt and traveling through the wilderness. It's a pilgrimage. Or Shavat, Shavat um, commemorates going to Sinai. So worship is supposed to incorporate this act of a pilgrimage. And in the Jewish mind, 
when you reenact something, you're actually there back in time. The intention of your life is always on this pilgrimage, leaving slavery and moving to the promised land, moving closer to freedom, moving closer to appear before the face of God. And that's what, as Catholics, we're going to do at the end of our life. So just like our ancestors, we walk. So at Mass, we walk together to get home to God, just as the ancient Jews did every year. Uh, and it's a reminder of where our life is supposed to be headed. So this sounds kind of strange. Just in biblical worship, you just don't pop out on a stage and start. You have this procession. That's why God commands that we walk. God doesn't command that we take walks, but our worship should, should include the action of walking together. So if you're Jewish and you greet somebody for worship, you say, Modim. So what are they saying when they say Modim? It means happy festival, but it really means walking, which I like. If you greet somebody um, uh, is Jewish, then uh, a Jewish feast, the greeting basically is the word walking. They knew that time and space were somehow always connected, um, even though it's, you know, the Passover happened 2,000 years ago. When we walk together to worship, it's happening right here and now. So um, the Jewish idea is that, no, it doesn't matter what the feast is. Going uh, Exodus, leaving Egypt, returning to the promised land. Um, a festival is walking. And we as Catholics, we go through the whole life of Christ, his death and resurrection every year. Hopefully you know that. We repeat the whole life of Christ from going to the north down to the death and resurrection. Or in Judaism. When somebody is mourning, what do Jews say to each other? If, like, God forbid, you lost your husband, what would the Jewish... Well, you didn't have to smile. I don't know why. Um, she didn't. She didn't. I was joking. She was just, I, she <laughs> joking. Um, uh, so what do you say when somebody is in mourning, if you're Jewish? It's ha, means the. Um, Macomb. And that there's a whole blessing. May the place comfort you. That's what it means. Hakom means the place. The place that comforts you. Um, uh, so uh, may the place comfort you among the mourners of Zion and uh, Jerusalem. That's actually what the whole phrase means. But it just means the place. That's what you say. And this sounds really strange, but one of the names of God in Judaism is quote unquote the place. God is referred to as the place, you know, because space, a uh, place, it gives you stability and solid ground and rootedness. And when you're mourning, nothing feels firm and stable. Death is this reminder how impermanent life is. And the place, uh, God, that's where we're all journeying to. So I love that, that worship you're supposed to worship is supposed to um, have this command that you're you start with this procession of moving towards God because one of the names of God is the place. And in no offense, as long as we're here, we're not really in the place. The place that will finally be comforted is really in the very presence of God in heaven. And so I mentioned this before, starting with the holy water, there's always holy water at the 
door of the church, the beginning of the procession. Going to over-explain this, but why the holy water is there is, um, um, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I'm moving. Um, <laughs> so the holy water is there because just really quick, uh, water in the Old Testament symbolizes change. It's really, really obvious. Water symbolizes change. So um, take, for example, uh, Moses. Moses is a coward. He kills somebody, he runs away, and um, then finally he gets near this water. And when he gets near the water, he sees this beautiful woman, and he falls in love with her. And the woman and his, her sisters are getting harassed by these men. And Moses, the coward, suddenly becomes brave and defends women. So... It happens near water, where he fell in love and suddenly stops being a coward. Or Jacob. Jacob is enormously selfish. He is so selfish. And um, Jacob is selfish, and he only thinks of himself, and he's on the run for his life because his brother wants to kill him for cheating him. And Jacob gets near water. And guess what happens? Yes, he sees a beautiful woman, and for the first time in his life, he doesn't think of himself. And Jacob, because he's not thinking just of himself, he gets cheated. But that's the beginning of his conversion. So when the people go through water, just generally, it symbolizes change and love. So think about it. They're Hebrew, right? They're he the 12 tribes, they're the Hebrew. And they go through the... Remember, Moses prays, they go through the water... And after they go through the water, God says, oh, on that side of the water, you are just 12 tribes. Now you're one people because you went through the water. Every time you go through water, you're changed. Um, so then um, uh, when they get to the River Jordan, once again, uh, Aaron prays, the water parts, they go through, and then God says, ah, oh, you went through the water. You're not just one people. You're one nation. You're even more unified. So the idea of going through water is um, uh, when you go through water, and the prophecy is when the Christ comes, he's going to make everybody go through the water again. So um, anyhow, uh, water symbolizes love, but love that changes us, where we become our true selves. And if you think about it, every time somebody goes through water, they no longer think of themselves. They become part of a community. Why do Catholics have the baptismal water at the every entrance ray? It's the idea that every time you come into this church, you're changing. You're becoming more and more a sense of community, more and more the person God created you to be. Does that make sense? Um, so, and the very last time, in case you don't know, that you're going to go through the water is your funeral. And the funeral starts out like a baptism, where at the door of the church, same place where the baptism starts, um, the priest dips his hand in the holy water and makes a sign of the cross on the casket or the ashes, and then your family does. And then everybody traces it over their own body. And going through the water one last time, it symbolizes going through the waters of Jordan that you're entering the promised land. So, just going back. So, we dip our hand in the holy water, we bless ourselves as prayer for change, and then we make this procession to the altar. So from the baptismal pool to the sanctuary, that's the journey of our life that is constantly hoping for uh, change. That's the pilgrimage. And when we get to the sanctuary, you bow to the altar. 
Why do we bow to the altar? By the way, don't bow to the priest. Don't bow to the tabernacle. You only bow to the altar. Um, so the sanctuary, it symbolizes the promised land, heaven. That sounds kind of strange, I know, but just a little background. Am I going to, am I losing you? Because I'm, okay. So when God commands Moses to build the temple, you know, when you build the temple, God says, I want three things in the temple. The uh, three pieces of furniture that are in the temple are in the temple because in heaven there's a temple. And in heaven, there's these three things. And so you have to have them in, in your temple. So in every Catholic church, there's supposed to be these three things in the sanctuary that symbolize, um, makes you think, oh, it's heaven. So since most of you people are Catholic, what are the three things that are supposed to be in every sanctuary? So first is the altar. In the center of heaven is an altar that the bread of life or the Lamb of God um, uses different symbolism. That's on the altar. Then uh, behind it is the throne of God. Um, that's the ark, the mercy seat. So in the temple, it would be the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant is where God would sit. So, um, and there housed, uh, was housed the bread of life uh, in the tabernacle, um, in the ark. So, uh, and then the third is a sanctuary lamp burning before the ark. So in every Catholic church, you have an altar, a tabernacle, and the sanctuary lamp burning. Just FYI, oh yeah. Yes. Well, here I am teaching you things. <laughs> the altar, no offense, is furniture. What's in the tabernacle, the Eucharist, when you're processing forward, that's a divine. You genuflect to the divine. Um, you bow, because a bowing is that you're going to offer something. So something has to be put on the altar. So it's a sign of reverence, but it symbolizes when you bow that you're going to offer your life. That's what you're going to put on the altar. And when you die, guess what? You'll be judged. Um, and the idea is that when you die, you are going to offer God a gift. Like there's a whole theme of offering God a gift. Well, I'll get to it later. But um, what you're bowing is that you're going to offer your life. You genuflect to the tabernacle. So just the three things, and you're saying, really, there's three pieces of furniture in heaven? Well, in heaven, there's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The altar symbolizes Christ. The mercy seat is a place for God the Father. And the sanctuary lamp is the Holy Spirit burning. Does that make sense? So, yeah, they are. In, but they're also in every Catholic church. So, um, yeah, we make this pilgrimage. Uh, our whole life is this pilgrimage really to heaven where we are going to offer our lives. So, like... Just going back, shouldn't we worship the way God? Why does God command in the Old Testament that we must make pilgrimages before the face of God? We do that every Sunday. Now, you can offer incense. Incense I love, but it's very unpopular. Uh, um, but the incense, um, this sounds kind of strange, um, it's supposed to be the sweet fragrance. And it happens twice, that phrase happens twice in the Bible, 
One, when Noah gets off the ark, and it says a sweet fragrance filled the earth because God and mankind were one. Also, when Christ dies, it says a sweet fragrance fills the earth because God and mankind are one. But think about the Exodus. When the Exodus was there, when they leave Egypt, there's this not, not only a pillar of fire, but this cloud. And the cloud, uh, the incense cloud symbolizes the Shekhinah, the cloud that led them out of Israel. So we're really not making this pilgrimage alone. The cloud, um, it guides us. The cloud, the Shekhinah, is the Holy Spirit. When they want to bless the temple, they know it's blessed because this huge cloud comes down, symbolizes the Shekhinah, the Holy Spirit, and fills the temple. And then, um, so the incense actually also symbolizes the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, the Shekhinah, that's traveling with us. Uh, just wanted to explain that symbol as well. Um, then we also, when we process in, typically we have a song. Why? Because Christ, on the way to the Last Supper, what they do? They sang. If Christ did it at the Last Supper, we're going to do it. Um, now, in the early church, they just gathered together in silence, but then they realized, but Christ didn't gather together in silence. They sang. In the, in, um, on the call Yahweh in the gathering, there was blaring of trumpets and songs. So, yes, typically on a Sunday, we would have singing. And singing, I just like because singing adds a solidarity to the community. It deepens our unity. So it's not really performative. But, you know, when people either act together or sing together, they gain this sense of unity. It's this really weird psychological study. So why do they make people in the army march together, synchronized? It creates a sense of unity. When people sing together, they have a greater sense of unity. So it does create this atmosphere of celebration, but it also brings people consciously together as a community. We also do it at the conclusion of Mass because Christ and the Apostles did after the Last Supper. So let me get this very clear. The opening song, the procession, is not about welcoming the priest. Um, it's about coming together as a community. So we process in together, of course, because you know, Mass has to go an hour. We just get a small group. Um, you know, the altar servers, the uh, readers. Um, but the first thing that processes in is the cross, Christ. The second is uh, the gospel and the candles. So this sounds kind of strange. The gospel and candles are one symbol. The gospel is our light. So that we don't go ahead of the gospel. The gospel doesn't follow us, we follow the gospel. Does that make sense? So um, then you can have like readers or Eucharistic ministers, and it just symbolizes all of us journeying to the altar. We bow, we walk forward, and then the priest and the deacon kiss the altar. So that kiss means something, and there's four kisses during Mass. So we're a people that love to kiss. Um, like, you know, have you ever thought about that? Like, you Catholics do a lot of kissing in Mass. Um, in ancient times, a kiss was a greeting of reverence. Um, and uh, so, a, well, uh, so this is the other thing. Um, so you would kiss sacred spaces. The other thing is that Romans, um, 
Roman families. On certain feasts, uh, around your dinner table, everybody would kiss the table, which I like. Um, so um, that becomes incorporated in the Mass as a sign of honor that the altar is the table of the Lord. So if we kiss our family tables when we gather together and we kiss sacred spaces, then they began to kiss the altar as a sign of uh, welcoming Christ. When people greet each other, they kiss. Um, so they kiss the altar. The altar symbolizes Christ. But in the altar, they put a stone and a relic of the saint. So, uh, saint. so when you kiss the altar stone, do you guys know what an altar stone is? Okay, so in every altar, there's an altar stone. So, like, sometimes if you see me at Mass, I, I do this. I sometimes, I don't know if I do this here, but I used to, like, with my hands at St. Mark's, play with the altar stone. I'd have to say, stop doing that. Because it was embedded in the wood. And in the stone is a relic of a saint. Um, I don't know who's our saint. It must be St. Pius. That's kind of a stupid thing. Okay, duh. Um, so anyhow, um, is it St. Pius, Kathy? Really? We didn't get St. Pius? Oh, how odd. So ours has two saints, but Kathy doesn't know who they are. Um, so let's not, let's not dwell on Kathy's lack of knowledge. But um, so the idea is that not only are you kissing, when you kiss the, the stone, not only are you kissing Christ our rock, but you're kissing all the saints in heaven as well because a relic is there. And in the book of Revelation, I love how... Um, you know, all the angels and saints gather around the altar um, and the throne, the mercy seat, and uh, they're all fed on the bread of life. But um, we do the exact same thing. We gather around the mercy seat, the tabernacle, and the altar to be fed as well. But it says in the book of Revelation that under the altar is uh, the saints crying out for justice. And so under all our altars are, yes, saints. And their presence there is supposed to cry out until we're all united together. Yes? Yeah, they do more kissing, but you know, those Greeks. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but the idea of kissing, our idea of kissing the saints, we don't have icons. Our idea of kissing the saints is kissing the altar stone, the relics. And in the early church, everybody kissed the altar. Uh, that's too many lips. It's just going to be the deacon and I. Um, but I do love that we incorporate kissing. Um, and we're mimicking what's going on in heaven. Then the next thing that happens is a sign of the cross. And this sounds kind of strange, but the cross is a tree. The cross is, um, well, start with this. The cross is a tree. The word for in Hebrew for cross or tree is the exact same word, eights. Um, and so, like, you'll read uh, Christ died on a tree. And you think, well, technically it was a cross. Yeah, it was. It was a tree in the shape of a cross, but the two words are identical. And so think about this. The 
the scriptures start with a cross, right? Or sorry, a tree in the Garden of Eden. Um, and it ends with a tree in the Garden of Eden. So another image of heaven is that in heaven is a garden, and in the center of the garden is the tree of life. And what do people, so how do these have eternal life? They eat the tree, food of, fruit of the tree. And the cross is a tree. And we at Mass eat from the tree of life. The cross is, has the body of Christ on it, and we eat the body of Christ. Do you get the symbolism? So believe it or not, trees are a huge, huge symbol in the Bible. I think I mentioned that before, didn't I? I did. Anyhow, some people weren't paying attention. Um, so, like, it is so popular. Yes, Kathy. Oh, okay. Kathy said um, it's octus and propris. I'll have to find that out. Kathy said she knew him from the early church. Oh, nice. Well, I've never heard of those. That's shocking, but... Uh, it is kind of nice. We have two. But uh, no, that you don't have to like. Saint Pius is not a martyr. Um, Saint Cabrini is not a martyr. Those two, I'm guessing, if they were early church, they were all martyrs. So they were probably martyrs. Second, like, but back to the tree thing. So. You can open up any page of scripture, and I swear to God, it will mention a tree. Um, God is the number one theme in the Bible. I forget what's second, but the third is trees. And trees mean something. So acting this out, it's, trees not only symbolizes food, but um, think about this. In the Garden of Eden, you had a lot of trees. And the fruit of those trees would give you physical life. But then God says, no, in the center of the garden is a tree of life. And the fruit on that tree, that's filled with God's very life. That will give you eternal life. Um, so there is a difference between just regular physical food and food of a spiritual life. But to get to the tree of life, you have to walk by the tree of the knowledge of good and selfishness. I know we say good and evil, but technically if you read the Hebrew, it's the knowledge of good and selfishness. Now the idea of that, like, you know, people make jokes, well, if you're going to have that, why wouldn't you put a fence around it? You know, but it may, it's making a better, that's so, what it means is this. For you to get to the tree of life, you have to make a judgment. Are you going to see the world as God sees it, or are you going to choose your own way? It, a tree, always in the Bible, means it's a place where you make a choice for or against God, for good, for, you know, going to go the way of God or not. So trees are not just about food, but trees are also where people make choices. Does that make sense? So yeah, it costs a little to eat from the tree of life. And the cost is you have to make a choice. Um, so always you have in the Bible, when somebody's near a tree, they make a choice to or for or against God. Does that make sense? Now, where's our tree in the church? That's a really good question, because the, the tree is the cross. Now, technically, we don't have a cross, but um, we will. Um, I'm going to put one in. But 
in every Catholic church, yes, there's those three things, but they're also supposed to be one cross, not many crosses, one cross. Um, and this sounds kind of strange. Cross and altar are uh, a dual symbol. Because if you notice in the Bible, every time there's a cross, there's also, or sorry, a tree, there's not always, but many, many times, there's an altar. So, um, like the tree of life. In one sense, it is an altar. You have to make a choice not to do something. Just sacrifice and say no to one thing. And they couldn't do it. Or Noah, um, he gets off the ark, and what does he do? He takes the wood of the ark, the etz tree, and builds an altar, and then makes a sacrifice. Abraham, when he gets to the promised land, do you know what he does when he's traveling all around the promised land? He keeps building these altars next to trees. Tree and altar are one symbol. Does that make sense? The altar and the tree, the cross, that's where we make our choices. Now, also, this sounds kind of strange. In the Bible, there's false trees. And a false tree, technically, is what we translate in English as an idol. So if, does that make any sense? So an idol is a false tree. So when Israel is bad, it says that they built on all the high places false trees. Um, and high places are mountains. And you say, well, what, what, what is story is that evoking? Anybody know what story that's evoking in the Bible? The high places and a false tree? No. Um, go to the back of the classroom. Um, but Sinai does have a mountain and a tree in it. Very good. Uh, but Moses makes the right choice at Sinai at that tree. And it's not a bush, it's a tree. Um, I know this sounds kind of strange. In the Hebrew mindset, anything with bark is a tree. So a grapevine is not a vine, it's a tree. Uh, a bush is just a small tree. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, but no, it's uh, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is uh, on top of a mountain, if you read the Bible. It's on top of the mountain. It's a mountain of God. And on the top of the mountain is the Garden of Eden. And the very, very top is the Tree of Life. Um, so when Israel is bad, they go to the tops of the mountain and build a false tree and offers a false sacrifice. So you have this contrast of, yeah, a false tree, an idol, and an altar on a high mountain that's the anti-Eden. The same way Abraham goes to the high places and builds altars next to trees. When they're evil, they do the opposite. They go to the high places, build idols and altars. Does that make sense? They're making a choice. So. The whole thing is just um, trees, um, it, it's a reverse of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, um, when they sin, they think they get to define what's good and rather than how God sees it. That's what Israel does when it builds these false trees. The only point is that trees are a place where people make choices for God. So I just love the fact that we process in, we bow, and... We bow before the altar, but also the tree, the, the cross. And that's where, before the altar, we're making uh, a choice for or against God. And then we trace on our bodies the symbol of a tree, the cross. Does that make sense? 
also that nobody knows this, but there's only supposed to be one tree, one cross per church, not multiple ones. So you could say, and I know I'm just mentioning this because I know somebody's going to ask the question. Well, if you look, you have the processional cross and then the altar cross. So the altar cross is the one that's above the altar. Does that make sense? But the idea is that you're supposed to process in behind the cross, and then the cross, the processional cross, suddenly becomes the altar cross. And so usually they hide the processional cross because you're supposed to be just focused on that one cross. Uh, and it drives me up a wall when you, because I've done this, walk into a church and see multiple crosses. <laughs> There's really only supposed to be one that we stand before and make a choice. So you have the symbol of the tree, but you also have the symbol of the mark, the tau. Um, and the tau, that's also a theme throughout the Bible. So give me an example. Do you know what the tau is? It's a Greek letter. Uh, it's a Greek letter. It looks like a T, a cross. Um, it symbolizes humility. Um, so like the reason why St. Francis took the tau as a symbol, instead of all the Greek letters, it's symbolizes um, humility. So if you ever see a Franciscan cross, it looks like a T. It's not a T, it's a Tau. It's a Tau cross. And St. Francis believed that um, uh, he was, his role in life was to serve the most humble, to be humble and serve the humble. But there's also the story in Ezekiel where an angel lets Ezekiel see this mark on the forehead of all who belong to God. And the mark, it says, looks like a tau. I, I love that. And then in Daniel, when Daniel looks at heaven, guess what people have on their forehead in heaven? The tau. Now, um, I like that because in the baptismal rite, how does, how does it start when you baptize a baby? I did it this weekend. What's the first symbol that we give to any child? Sign of the cross. I trace the sign of the cross on his forehead. Um, the parents, godparents, what rest of the family, they trace it, and then they trace it over their own bodies. And we're connected. But marking the forehead marks them as owned by God, but a citizen of heaven. All those in heaven have the towel on their forehead. So like yesterday, I anointed, um, what's her name? Chatterton. Flo Chatterton. And so I'm take the holy oil and make the, the sign of the cross on her forehead. Why do I do that? Because she's close to dying and I'm marking her as a citizen of heaven. Does that make sense? Um, but the Romans also placed this mark of ownership on their slaves and their property. And likewise, likewise Roman generals would tattoo their quote-unquote mark of ownership on the army. So Paul, St. Paul, had this marking system in mind when he said, God has placed his mark of ownership upon us, quote unquote. Um, that's what we get when we're baptized. But every time we go to mass, we remind ourselves that we are the property of God by tracing the sign of the cross on over our bodies. Does that make sense? We're who we belong to. And so during the Diocletian uh, persecution, the church really emphasized the sign of the cross. So when Christians were getting persecuted, you know, they would hold out their hands in the shape of the cross and try and uh, hold it as long as possible before dying. 
I love that. It's a first symbol you receive, and it's a last symbol you receive. And they did it as a sign of a uh, kind of resistance that, um, you know, you think this is going to kill me. It's actually just going to be me being born into eternal life. So the cross became the sign of unity and pouring out your life for others. That Christ said, you must follow me. So mass is a remembering about following the way of Christ, of pouring out our lives for each other. Christ said, you must pick up your cross and follow me. So um, uh, I love that. Um, anyhow, um, but the cross is also a threefold message. That first, it's a sign of just how much God loves us. That Christ loves us so much that in this very dramatic way as possible, willing to suffer anything for us. Uh, the greatest love a person can have for his friends is to lose his life for them. When we make the sign of the cross over our bodies, that's what we're saying. Second, it's an invitation to love others as Christ loved. Love one another as I have loved you. How did Christ love? To offer his life. So we make the sign of the cross. Um, and third, it's this revelation of an unremarkable language that Christ said to his apostles. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. Um, we do that every Mass. Does that make sense? Okay, so we make the sign of the cross. Any questions about that symbol? Okay, so we do that, and we do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when, it, when we say in the name of, I just want to go over that. Um, in the name of God is a trinity. So um, Christ commands us to baptize all the world in the name, not names, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, in the name doesn't mean really words, even though that's the words we use. Uh, name means the being of God. And what is God's being? So little homily from St. Augustine. So St. Augustine on the Feast of the Trinity, it's my favorite homily from St. Augustine because the Trinity is hard to figure out, right? Let's face it. Um, drives me up a wall on the Feast of the Trinity. Even as a kid, I used to pay attention to Mass. And on the Feast of the Trinity, the priest would always give this stupid homily of saying, well, you know, the, the Trinity is a mystery, so who can really figure it out? And there you go. I'm like, well, if it's a dogma of the Catholic Church, shouldn't you be able to explain it? That, that just seemed ridiculous to me. Like, the Trinity doesn't explain what God is. We could never do that. But it's of a dogma of the Catholic Church. You should be able to explain it or don't call it a dogma. The Trinity doesn't explain what God is. It explains how God is for us. And St. Augustine, when he's given this homily, he says, you know, the problem with theology is that people take the words too literally. That when we say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we say Father, people think that, that God is this old man. So, you know, like, you know what I mean? Uh, three, you know, three individuals. I'm not done yet. Um, <laughs> in the name of the Father, Son, I, don't you interrupt me, woman, I swear to God. Um, so in the, he says, when you say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Father is not God's name. Um, that's the name of a relationship. Father and son is a type of relationship. Um, so St. Augustine said, the same way we could say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he said, we can use other words. 
We can say in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself. Um, and he had a bunch of these. In the name of the giver of the gift, the receiver of the gift, and the gift itself. And he basically says, when we say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're saying that God is perfect, loving community. That we are baptized, we're enfolded in perfect, loving community. So when we start in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's not like magical words. It's a prayer that we be enfolded in the community of the Trinity. And how do we get enfolded into the Trinity? How do we do that? Well, one is baptism. The other is, yeah, the Eucharist. Abraham, there's this great picture of Abraham and the three angels. Three angels are strangers, but they symbolize the Trinity. And God is offering to, uh, in this meal, enfold us. In, through this meal, we become enfolded into lover, beloved, and, and love itself. So, yeah, now the question. As long as you have permission from your husband to ask the question. Oh, okay. I'll call him. <laughs> Oh, why? Okay, so when I make the sign of the cross, I put my hand on my heart. Um, why do I do it? Because I was told to do it. <laughs> and no, it's a really good. I, I was just told to do it. So like I just remember Father Pascal and the How to Celebrate Mass class said, you put your hand on your heart. So, okay, I'll do it. But here's the thing. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that demands it. But remember, we are supposed to love with all our heart, mind, and soul. So that's the meaning I gave to that gesture. But I think rather than just do it because Father Pascal said to do it, if I don't know the reason, I'll give it a reason. And so it becomes more of a true prayer that, yeah. Does that make any sense? For me. I'm not saying you have to. I've never said Yeah, and I think you should do that with everything, to be honest. Um, if you don't know the meaning, well, think about it and give it one. So it becomes a prayer. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the priest says, the Lord be with you. That's a big theology, too. Um, the Lord be with you is actually an older symbol than the cross. It's so old, we don't even know when it started. So old, like, we know it was a greeting because, like, look in the Bible, look in the book of Ruth. When um, you greet somebody, it's important. You have the phrase, the Lord be with you. And, like, it could mean, like, we're two or three are gathered together, I am in your midst. So it could mean that. But think about this. I, and I really hate when priests do this. When you say, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, well, morning! You know, we don't say hi to each other. That's why I have the announcements before the Mass starts. We don't start saying the, hi to each other. We start with what the, is the center of our life, which is the Lord. Uh, we're not just another group of people who've come together for a common activity. That greeting and response, it expresses that Christ is in the community. Um, Christ is not in the past or the future, but right here and now, not beyond us, in us. So what does the phrase, the Lord be with you, mean? Well, one, Christ is present here among us. Secondly, um, and this is important, it happens four times in the Mass. 
there's four kisses and four times you hear the Lord be with you. Um, and each time the phrase the Lord be with you is given, it means not just that Christ is present, but that your world is going to get turned upside down. So I want to explain those two things. One, Christ is present. Um, so it happens that four times in the Mass, and the first time is when we gather together. Um, and so where is the presence of Christ in the gathering rite? Us. Yeah, it's, it really is a sign of baptism. In baptism, we believe Christ, the Holy Spirit, is in us, uniting us. So when I say the Lord be with you, it's this big red arrow. Oh, the first place you find Christ is in a community. So they call it the four modalities of Christ. So think about this. Every time you come upon the presence of Christ, so it's a really important greeting, it means here is the presence of Christ. The second thing, it means your world is going to get turned upside down, or it should. Because every time somebody mentions the Lord be with you in the Bible, their world gets turned upside down. And they grow closer to God. So let's take Jacob, because I like the Jacob story. Anybody here named Jacob? Anybody here name their child Jacob? Oh, for the love of God, why would you name a child Jacob? <laughs> Seriously, do you know what the name Jacob means? No. Good guess, because he was grabbing the heel. Good guess. What's that? What? Uh, no, that's what Israel means. Good job. He becomes Israel. Jacob becomes Israel, gets renamed. When he becomes holy, um, his name means wrestles with God. So he starts wrestling in the womb, but that wrestling turns into something holy. Before he's holy, his name is Jacob. And the word Jacob means supplanter or trickster. Because think about this. He tricks his brother. He tricks his father. He tricks uh, Laban. He is a tricker, trickster. Um, so why, for the love of God, would you name your child Jacob? You should name him obedient, quiet one who does what he's told to do. Um, and Jacob, um, yeah, is, think about this. He, he, um, he's on the run from his brother for tricking his brother, and his brother has threatened to kill him. So um, I love this part of the Bible where... Um, He's not really a good person, so his father is, but he's not. And he's running for his life, and um, he stops in this place and puts his head on this stone. It's going to be where the temple is, the stone of the temple, in case you miss that. Um, so he's actually sleeping in a holy spot and doesn't know it. And he decides to say this prayer, and he's, it's like the worst prayer in the Bible, where he says... Um, Basically, God, God of my Father, I'll believe that you exist, <laughs> or you know, follow him, if you get me united with my brother again, give me a beautiful wife, lots of children, lots of herds, <laughs> a big truck, um, <laughs> um, then I will follow you. Well, that's a terrible prayer. Like, that's the worst prayer. And he has a dream of the angels, that this is a holy spot, right? Um, and he's so moved by that, he builds rocks upon rocks to remind him of this spot because this is where it started. And God says to him, the Lord be with you. 
and says, Jacob, I'll take you up on that bet because I'm a better Jacob trickster than you are. And the next day he gets near water and he is tricked. For the first time, he doesn't think of himself. But the point being is that every time in the Bible you hear the phrase, the Lord be with you, it sounds nice. Yeah, oh, great, the Lord's with Jacob. It means he's going to trick us. And the trick in the Mass is this. If we truly come together on the sign of the cross, this united in Christ, the trick is, like Jacob, we die a little. We stop thinking of ourselves and we think of the community. We die a little. We think more about God. So there's supposed to be, every time you hear this phrase, the Lord be with you, your life is supposed to be turned upside down. And here's the thing. We want it to be. You know, we, like I love in the Psalms where it says, oh, Jacob. Anytime it says, oh, God of Jacob, you're asking God to trick you like he did Jacob and everybody else to become the holy man. He finally does become a holy man after God really does pull a trick on him, um, wounds him, but he becomes holy. We're asking for the same thing. So after that, the mass has um, three different ways of going, and that's a penitential rite. So... Um, you have the penitential rite, um, you have the confidior, uh, or you could do the um, uh, holy water. So the penitential rite, it actually became very popular in the uh, Gallo-Frankish lands. Um, but here's a strange thing. Um, uh, you could do that, so that's a, what you know, the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. But I love that because we are a church of sinners. I was... Um, traveling in Italy once and with this, actually Father Pascal, the one, a good friend, but um, uh, they unearthed this archaeological site of an ancient, ancient church. So um, we go, we're in Rome and I want to look at this ancient church. He wants to take me to it, I should say. Um, and I'm looking and on the outside before you get into ch the church, above the lentil, it has a Latin phrase. So I say to him, what's that phrase and he looks and he says oh oh it says we are a church of sinners and he said in rome uh, in ancient times they would write that above the doors so you know if you're self-righteous if no offense storm if you're too holy for the rest of us you don't need to be coming into this building um like don't you love we are a church of sinners like i think we should put that above our doors <laughs> um like and so the penitential rite is, yeah, we're a church of sinners that want conversion. Now, the penitential rite is not supposed to be a sermon. It's not supposed to be wordy. Um, and it's not supposed to be accusatory. So, you know what I mean by accusatory? Oh, for the times in which Dorma has not obeyed her husband, Lord, have, for the times our children have not listened to our parents, that's an accusation. Does that make sense? It's supposed to be a litany of praises. It's supposed to be a litany about Christ. So it's, Lord Jesus, you feed us with your body and blood. Lord, have mercy. It is asking for conversion, but it's centered on Christ. And technically, in the liturgy, you're supposed to make the penitential right match what's going on in the gospel. So if it's gospel, the gospel is Jesus healing somebody, probably the penitential right is, Jesus, you heal us from our wounds. Lord, have mercy. If the gospel is the feeding of the 5,000, Lord Jesus, you feed us. Does that make any sense? The two are supposed to match, the gospel and the penitential rite. Um, 
But here's the other thing. It's also politically subversive. Political in the sense of um, in, in the times of the persecution, you could cry out for Caesar to have mercy. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get the thumbs up. But as this way of uh, subversion, which I like, just to be defiant, um, instead of Christians, when they're being killed, instead of crying out, Lord, uh, Caesar, have mercy, they would cry out, Kyrie, uh, Lord, Jesus, Lord Jesus, have mercy. That's, a, you know, your last act before dying is that I'm going to stick it to Caesar. Like, I am not looking for the state to show me mercy. Don't you love that? No, I do. Um, so, uh, I also love this, and this is really rare. It's to take responsibility for our actions. Like, that's really rare. Like, I know this sounds kind of strange. I get caught, like, I was walking around the church just last week, right? I'm walking around church, stomping around early in the morning. That's what I do. I go for a walk. Um, and I'm walking around, and this woman stops me because she's not Catholic, but she's figured out that I'm um, the priest. And she says, yeah, I was when I, she lives in the corner over here. And she says, I need uh, help with my rent. And I just thought, A, that's strange because don't even know her. And I said, well, really, St. Vincent de Paul would handle that. And she says, oh, I've gone through St. Vincent de Paul before, but I just was wondering if I can get something directly from the church. And she said, um, she's not much older than I am, my approximate age. And I said, well, do you have a job? And she says, no, no, I don't want a job. <laughs> well, if I couldn't pay my rent, I would want a job. And she says, I've gone through other churches, and I, I need some help with my rent money. And I said, well... Uh, have you thought about living in a different locality? Said, no, I like living here. But like, I just kind of was struck that, wow, she's gone through all the services for Lent. She has uh, no intention to get a job. But to me, it's just this huge lack of responsibility where I've had a problem, not now, but I used to have a problem with that yard out there was poop heaven for dogs. Um, and I had last week somebody get upset with me because I asked them to pick up their dog poop. Um, yeah, like this lack of responsibility. But think about this. When we gather for the penitentiary, right, we want to be responsible for our sins. I love the psalm where it says, God, show me my sins. Um, we're asking. Adam and Eve, after they sin, they blame God for their sin. Do you know that? They blame God. They blame each other. They blame the snake. But the one person that doesn't take responsibility is Adam and Eve. So the penitential right is the reverse of Adam and Eve blaming each other. No, we, we take it. It's, the sin is our fault. Not our mothers, not society, not the governments. It's our fault. Um, it's not just saying it's everybody else's fault. It's saying, um, you know, sorry, think about this. Sorry. Anybody who says it's, it's society's fault, it's everybody else's fault, in a way they're saying that they're God because the only one who's faultless is God. Like, no, believe me, I have my faults. Um, so, uh, like, you find that so common in our society that it's everybody else. Is there, if there's poor among us, um, uh, yeah, I know this sounds strange, and I defend the poor. I'm very concerned about the poor, but I've been in poor, poor countries. And so when people say, well, people steal because they're poor, that's not true. 
I've been to desperately poor countries where people don't steal because they have a moral code. People don't steal because they're poor. They steal because they have a lack of a moral code. And I hate, like, you know, you saw those riots where they're breaking and stealing TVs. They're not starving to death if they're running away with a TV. They steal because of low, but yet we're a blame society. It's nobody's fault. Um, I love the fact that, yeah, when we gather together, we do the penitentiary. I want to know my sins. Reveal them to me. Um, let us have mercy. It also learns to act, ask for forgiveness. You know, it's narcissists who have a difficulty asking for forgiveness. Did you know that? Sociopaths are incapable of asking for forgiveness. They feel no regret. The penitential rite just doesn't express sorrow. Mere sorrow, you know, weeping and sitting still is not repentance. Repentance is sorrow converted into action. It's movement. So yeah, I want to know my sins so I can move away from them. Lord, have mercy. The penitential rite expresses sorrow and moves into repentance. And then it makes us have a vow of commitment in the Eucharist for a better life. So I love that. Or you can do the uh, confitier. The confitier is just an act of contrition. So it's you have the penitential rite, the Lord have mercy, the confidier. And I love even like the striking of the breast. So remember, every symbol means something. What does the striking of the breast mean? Well, in Luke, when people are leaving Calvary, the gospel says that they began to beat their breasts. And we've continued this for 2,000 years to be responsible. So why do Catholics do that? Yeah, we're just acting out um, the gospel of Luke. At 3 o'clock when Christ died, yeah, it is my fault. I want to know my responsibilities. Or the third way is the renewal of the baptismal promises by the throwing, way, <laughs> throwing holy water. You, you, you know that, right? That, that's another way. Um, baptism is about this conversion of life, um, and holy water is about change. So um, like we use it. I, actually, like I always use a brush or a hyssop because... The Bible, it's cleanse me, O Lord, with hyssop, that I may be purified. So here's just me. Just to let you know, with those three different openings right there, I'm going to change that to the seasons. So during Advent, I'm going to chant the Curie. Um, in Lent, we're going to do the Confidior. It's an act of contrition. In ordinary time, we'll do the Penitentiary, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And in Easter, yeah, for 50 days of Easter, we're doing the holy water. So it change, it'll change with the season. After that comes the Gloria. Um, now, in some ways, it continues a penitential rite. There's not supposed to be a big pause, but it's supposed to be this big yes to the glory of God. I have to admit, I don't like the Gloria. I don't like the Gloria because if you said to somebody in the early church, uh, what about the Gloria? They'd have no idea what, you, what it was. The Gloria actually was added later. The Gloria um, actually was first in the 6th century. It was part of a, the eastern side of the empire. It was uh, in a morning prayer. So it's two parts, uh, one from the Gospel of Luke, two parts of Scripture, and it was part of just the bravery. Then in the Dark Ages, somebody put it to song, 
and it was used at a Christmas mass. It was supposed to be used just for the Pope's mass, sung at Christmas time for the Pope's mass. But you know how things are politically. Like if the Pope does it, I wanna prove that I'm just as orthodox as the Pope. So we're gonna put it in our mass. And it just became such a symbol of orthodoxy, everybody started to sing the Gloria. But the problem is, where do you put it? So when it, by that time in the Middle Ages, well, we gotta, we gotta keep it. So you gotta stick it somewhere. So they stick, stuck it after the penitentiary because they needed some place to put it. Um, like that's not like, I know that sounds terrible. You can, the same way putting my hand in the heart, I just come up, I've heard priests say, well, the Gloria means this, but no, there's nothing really in scripture or in the ancient church that mandates the Gloria. So I'll do it because I'm told to do it because I am super obedient as everybody knows. But like, I really, I'm not really thrilled with the history of the Gloria. Um, just me being honest. Um, and then after that is the collect. The collect is the opening prayer. And it's called the collect because it collects all our prayers together as one. Um, and I do like the fact that, um, th I love this, that all throughout the world, all the collects are the same. The problem is that with this latest transition, uh, translation of the opening prayers, I think they're God-awful. Like if you had to grammatically line out that prayer, they're terrible. You know, I feel like Yoda because it has this backwards way of speaking. So I don't really like the new, new versions of them. But there's actually two options. So they, this sounds kind of strange. They have the ones from the Middle Ages. Then after Vatican II, they came up with a whole new set of alternative uh, prayers. And those are god-awful too. Those are really, you know, those are just too kumbayage. Um, then there's a third one that's approved by the bishops, and those are prayer opening prayers based on what's going on in the gospel. Those are really beautiful. Love those. Um, but those are that's a collect. Um, okay, so uh, that's the opening prayer. Um, so the the structure is always the same: two through, uh, two in and through, to God the Father in Christ. Uh, sorry, in the Holy Spirit through Christ. So that's, if you say, well, how are Catholic prayers structured? To God the Father in the Holy Spirit through Christ. So it always addresses through Christ in, does that make any sense? Uh, so if you ever have to come up with a prayer, just use the uh, through, in, and uh, I just mess that up. To, in, and through. So Father, Holy Spirit, and with Christ. Um, and there's a gesture. When you do the opening prayer, your hands are supposed, the priest's hands are supposed to be open. Now, not making that up, think about this. When Moses prays, and you know they're having this battle, and as long as Moses prays, his hands are open, they're winning the battle. When they drop down, when he lowers them, they lose the battle. So he has to have two guys come over and hold his hands. So, um, this is a symbol of prayer. This is also, what else? Who else died with this symbol? Yeah. So it's the sign of the cross. So if you notice, like, or in ancient um, frescoes, if you go to Rome, you'll see the Virgin Mary and like all the saints, and everybody has their hands open. 
and the sign of the cross. So that's a sign of prayer. That often confuses people because they think this is a sign of prayer. This is a sign of obedience. And the cross thumbs means good will conquer evil. It has that theme in the Bible. Um, so this is good conquering evil, but this is listening or obedience. So if you notice, like at a priest's ordination, if you're the bishop, I would kneel before you and make a vow of obedience. My hands would be like this. Then you would put your hands over mine. So in the Middle Ages, when he became a knight and swore to the king, they just copied the ordination rite. So really, this is not the sign of prayer. It's this. It's the sign of the cross. Although I will say this. I have one of my friends who I really like, he's this priest, and I don't really get what he does, but when he does the opening prayer, he does this, and <laughs> I mock him and say, it looks like you're being held up. <laughs> It looks like you're frightened being held up. And I said, when Christ died, he didn't go like this. He went like this. I just, anyhow, sorry, I'm being goofy. All right, so um, any questions? Sorry, I went too long. I'm nine minutes over. Well, I wasn't going to repeat. I wanted to finish the gathering right. So I love this. Every gesture means something. Every word has a trace, well, I shouldn't say every, 90% of every gesture and word um, has a meaning to it from Scripture. Shouldn't we worship as God asked us? So we're literally acting out Scripture. All right, well, have a cup of coffee, and I got to go, so God bless you. Thank you, guys.